Okay, so we have a, a couple of firsts for us tonight as a church. This, of course, is our first official regular Sunday evening service. We are at the play, at a place in history right now in which the Sunday evening service is just going the way of extinction. Uh, most churches today are not having a Sunday evening church like they used to in, in years past. And so we're going against the trend and we're establishing a Sunday evening service now like Pastor Nick mentioned, we've been trying to prepare ourselves for this. We've been doing the Sunday uh, theology nights over the past couple of years, trying to get us accustomed to coming on a Sunday evening, coming back to gather for more worship. And hopefully that'll, you know, that has served its purpose. It's good to see a lot of people here. So I think that that did help some. So I was very, uh, very happy to see all of you guys here tonight. And then also, this also happens to coincide with the other first for our congregation that we are embarking on tonight as well, and that is the use of the catechism as a church and the implementation of it as the whole church. We have in the past used the catechism before with uh, some of the student ministry. For the past few years, I've written a little bit about the Baptist catechism in the monthly newsletter. When COVID first um, hit, we took a break from obviously meeting and we met over Zoom and we discussed uh, what's called the Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. It's another Baptist catechism, not the one that we're going to be discussing tonight, but we did that over Zoom. But this officially is the first time that FFC has come together as a whole church to take advantage of a catechism. And we have in the past as well quoted from time to time Sunday morning on Sunday mornings catechism question and answers because they have been even helpful in that regard. But just like with the Sunday evening service, the, the use of a catechism among evangelical churches today is not a very popular thing. Not a whole lot of churches are doing it. Uh, other Protestants have maintained this practice, but with the exception of Reformed Baptists, it's not common among uh, Baptist circles especially. And when you consider the sheer amount of evangelical churches, and that would include a whole slew of Baptistic churches, churches that maybe are not Baptist by name, but they're Baptist in practice. So I'm thinking of churches like the Pentecostal denominations, uh, the Church of Christ, or the massive amount of non-denominational churches, which are essentially Baptist in, in doctrinal practice, meaning that, um, you know, there are any church that doesn't baptize infants. There are huge, a huge amount of churches, evangelical churches, Protestant churches that don't utilize or take care of or take advantage of a catechism. So much so that in some ways, that in some regard, catechism is even a, a taboo word among many people in our culture, in our society today. It's even an evil word, you know, that good Baptists have no business associating themselves with. But is that how it always was? Is that has that always been the case for evangelicals, for Baptists, or is that a modern development? So we'll address that tonight. I took the um, the liberty of asking some saints who have known the Lord much longer than myself. Uh, I try to especially ask believers who have known the Lord longer than I've been alive, even to 40, 40 years. I actually just realized um, just the other day that I'm officially and an adult Christian. Now, it's 18 years ago that, that Christ revealed himself to me. So I was uh, humbled by that. But so anyways, I, I asked adult, adults that I've known that have been Christian for a long time if they had ever used a catechism before as children or just in their, in their life at all. And with the exception of those who had Roman Catholic backgrounds, none of them had, not a single one. So I wonder 
for all of you that are here tonight, not including any Roman Catholic upbringing, did any of you experience the use of a catechism as a child? These young babies, they count. They're, they're all right, yeah. <laughs> so no adults' hands are going up right now, which I think that that is the common experience among us as evangelicals. That is the, the common practice. Even if you've grown up in the church for the last, you know, 40-plus years, 50, 60 years, a catechism wasn't taken advantage of. Uh, what about in, in recent years? Has any of you Have any of you been familiarized with the catechism in recent years? Some? Okay. And I know some of you guys with children, you've introduced your, your kids to them as well, too. Well, since there is, generally speaking, a lot of confusion and hesitation among evangelicals concerning the use and the application of a catechism, we felt that it would, we would be best served as a congregation to kind of introduce a catechism and the purposes of it before we actually dive into the catechism itself. Uh, if, you, if you have the outline I passed out, it's just a a fairly simple task that, I, that I'm trying to do tonight. There's one main thing that I would love if you can only take one thing away from tonight, and that is this, is that simply the catechism is not a Roman Catholic thing. Okay, if there's, if there's nothing else that you get from tonight, just know a catechism is not a Roman Catholic thing. But I have a simple outline for us. If you note your out, the outline, we're going to consider what a catechism is, why you should use a catechism, where did the Baptist catechism come from, and then how we will use the Baptist Catechism. So pretty simple. And I've tried trying to be brief here because um, I didn't expect you guys to save me this much time, actually. But I, I'm, I'm still trying to be brief with these things. So first off, what is a catechism? Well, if we think of it in the simplest way possible, a catechism is simply a tool that helps us to understand what the Bible teaches. That, that's really all that it is. There's a lot of talk today about critical race theory, right, and how that's an analytical tool that we can use to understand what the Bible teaches. We've talked about that and the danger of doing such a thing before here um, in our Sunday theology nights, excuse me, and then also even on Sunday mornings. But this is different than that. Whereas critical race theory is something outside of Scripture that seeks to impose itself onto the Scriptures to help you understand it. And it, and it doesn't do that. It ends up messing things up. A catechism is something that is drawn from the scriptures on itself so that we can better understand what messages the Bible is teaching, what doctrines the Bible is conveying. And it's typically given in question and answer format. Okay, So it's, it's drawn from the Bible to explain what the Bible is already seeking to teach. Um, and it's often, again, question and answer format. So in other words, a question is posed. And then the answer is given. So by necessity, then, a catechism is subordinate to the word of God, isn't it? It's, it's a useful tool, but it's only a useful tool in so much as it accurately conveys what the Bible teaches. If it teaches something other than what the Bible teaches, then we disregard it. Right. Like we would have no we would have no business using the Roman Catholic catechism because we see what they teach as being in conflict with what the scriptures actually teach. And we toss it out. It's no longer helpful. A catechism that isn't subordinate to the scriptures, a catechism that isn't in line with what the word of God says is a harmful tool. And so in so much as the catechism is subordinate to the scriptures, then it's just like a, a creed or a confession of faith. These things aren't on the same level as it were with scripture. The scriptures are inspired and divinely given from God to the biblical authors, which which they wrote, uh, which wrote 
down these words as God sovereignly illuminated them to do so. The words of Scripture are inherent, meaning that they are without error, in other words. They are the very ideas of God. Every word of the Bible in the original manuscripts lives up to that standard. The Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword we read in the epistles to the Hebrews. And the, the translations that we have today as well, though they're not the original manuscripts themselves, we have much reason to be confident that they convey the same truths. They're very close to what those original manuscripts are. Uh, the scriptures are theopnosos, meaning that they are, they are God-breathed. They are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So a catechism... The creeds and confessions, for that matter, as well, too, they don't hold that sort of authority. Okay, They do not hold that sort of authority that the scriptures themselves do. Yet, they are, of course, helpful when they accurately convey what the Bible does teach. And there's a lot more that we can say about that, but I don't want to go too, too in-depth because of the sake of time. A, a catechism is often a systematic teaching aimed to instruct in foundational doctrine and encourage piety in the people of God. Let me say that again. A catechism is specific, often systematic. So like the questions build upon each other, right? Like a systematic theology book does. It's a specific, often systematic teaching aimed to instruct in foundational Christian doctrine and encourage piety in the people of God. To encourage righteous living and righteous wor worship, in other words. That's, that's good, isn't it? We want that for ourselves, I think. We don't want to be creators of worship or creators of standards of righteousness. So a catechism is a helpful tool to the end of being conformed to what God's word says. And historically, catechisms have been really helpful with evangelizing new converts. Now, I know that for the most part, we have been conditioned to think that catechisms are a Roman Catholic thing. But in fact, that, that's far from the truth. It's historically inaccurate. Uh, we see actually catechisms being implemented and being and used first in the early church, the patristic, uh, patristical period, um, specifically in the writings of Clement, all the way back to the first and second century. Uh, so before the church was polluted by many of the doctrines that define Roman Catholicism, right? Way back then, a lot of the things that define the Roman Catholic Church today weren't true for the church at that point when it had started out. So when the new covenant had been ratified in the blood of Christ and the teaching of the apostles concerning the mystery of Christ and the salvation that is offered to the world in and through him, the early church started to use catechisms to teach doctrine. Now, what do you guys think the religious climate was like back when the gospel first started spreading into pagan lands? What was it like back then? What was the people's understanding? Polytheist, I mean, so pagan. It was totally opposed to what the scriptures would teach. Right? There's a lot of false teaching then. Uh, polytheism meaning many gods, uh, not the one true God, not Yahweh, one God and three persons. And so catechisms at that point when the church was starting off was this tool that was implemented by the early church fathers, early churches, to teach and to instruct new converts on what the Bible actually does teach, what is true about God, and what is 
not true about God as well. Um, eventually, though, uh, catechisms fell on unpopular times, kind of like they have today, but for a different yet similar reason. In the fourth century, Christianity became the essentially the state religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, it became a, a sacral society in which everyone was considered to be part of the church simply because they were born into being a Roman citizen. I remember the Edict of Milan was passed, and it, Christianity was no longer illegal. Christians went from being persecuted to being the essentially the state religion. And catechesis, the act of catechizing, fell on hard times for about a thousand years. And it wasn't until the Reformation that catechesis became popular once again. And what was the religious climate like during the Reformation? Crazy. I mean, it was a mess. The, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church had utterly shadowed and erased the gospel. I mean, justification by faith alone was considered a, a heresy, a heretical comment uh, by the, the Protestants. So it was, it was, there was a great need to evangelize and to instruct and to teach. And so at the time of the Reformation, catechesis became popular once again. In 1563, you have the publishing of what is called the Heidelberg Catechism, a catechism that is still used today in Dutch Reformed churches as part of what's called the Three Forms of Unity. Uh, the Roman Catholic Catechism, the one that evangelicals commonly think of today when we hear the word catechism, it, was, it wasn't created until 1566. So three years after the, the Dutch Reformed brothers created the Heidelberg Catechism. So the, and the Roman Catholic Catechism was put forward in 1566. If you know history, that's the year of a very famous council that the Roman Catholic Church had. It's the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent is where they firmly established themselves as being contrary to the gospel. It's where they firmly established themselves as being opposed to the true church. There's still today no peace with Rome because they deny the gospel. They, they reject, they have, as a matter of fact, in their teachings that came out of the Council of Trent, they say that if you believe that you're justified by faith alone, that you are anathema, that you are cut off from the possibility of salvation. That's how serious the Council of Trent was for them. And so their catechism, the reason why evangelicals today commonly associate catechisms with the Roman Catholic Church, it came after one of the most famous and well-known Protestant catechisms. Catechisms are not a Roman Catholic invention at all. They're not in any way, shape, or form a Roman Catholic idea. They are simply tools that all Christians can take advantage of. A catechism, again, is a specific, often systematic teaching aimed to instruct the foundational Christian doctrine and encourage piety in the people of God. So we can and we should use them. Purposely being brief with these things, that brings us to our next point. Why use a catechism? Well, the reality, friends, is that Christianity is a taught faith. It is a taught faith. It is, is of course, first a divinely, it is divinely revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. Some aspects of it, that is, such as the reality of, of God and His holiness, the reality of our sin, the reality of our, our, our guilt inherited from Adam and our inability to be right with God apart from an atoning sacrifice. Those things are taught to us, also um, divinely revealed to us when we truly believe. 
I mean, we could teach those things and we do teach those things on a human level, but for them to be truly received is because the Holy Spirit illuminates the heart and the mind. But as it is with those things and the rest of what it means to be a Christian and live the Christian life, Christianity is something that we are taught, that we must be taught. Even if we're not taught through a catechism, we're taught some other way. The reality is, is we are learning what it means to be a Christian one way or another, whether it's just from the, the preaching on the Sunday morning, whether it's from your uh, family worship, your devotions at home, whether it's your own time in the Bible by yourself, you're being taught what the word teaches. And a catechism is simply a way to teach. There's no way of getting around being taught. We're going to, to be taught and we learn. And we will either be taught and learn the right things or we'll be given over to false teaching and then learn harmful and perhaps even damning things. But just think even of what Jesus said in the Great Commission. We're a Baptist church, so we should be especially familiar with the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Okay, all authority has been given to him. And then because of that, we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he gives us that wonderful promise. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus, in his instruction to the church before he ascends to go and make disciples, he tells us that we are to teach. We are to take what he has given to us and specifically the apostles then and is passed on in, in the word. And then it is taught to other generations as we, as people are being discipled and made to be part of the kingdom. We're to teach the faith. Deuteronomy 6 famously teaches that parents are to actually teach their children. It's actually to catechize their children. You might remember from Ephesians 4 that God gives the church pastors and teachers not just so that they can stand up and read the Bible verbatim. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. We, we do do that. We should do that. But also you have to teach what the scriptures say, what the scriptures say. I quoted, um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 earlier, right? Which says the scriptures are profitable for what? For teaching. For, for teaching. In Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, he writes in chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So the Greek, the Greek word for the one who is taught is katechumenos. Katechumenos. One who is catechized, in other words. In other, in other words, Paul is talking about a body of Christian doctrine, a catechism, that was taught to them by an instructor. Here it's the word, the catechizer. And there are many times... Um, we actually see this Greek word used in scripture, this uh, catechumenos. And for the sake of time, we won't go and visit them all, but it's clear that teaching is involved in the Christian faith. And that's where we get this word catechism from. It's one of those rare English words that has retained its Greek roots. But it simply means teaching, or it simply means to teach. And so as I was saying earlier, in so much as a catechism is faithful to the word of God, it is a helpful tool in accomplishing what God's word instructs us to do, and that is to teach. Now, there's a lot that I can say here, but I'm going to limit this section to three subsections, um, three reasons why 
we should use a catechism. So we're still in this second subsection, why use a catechism. Now I'm giving you three specific reasons why here. Uh, number one, for ease of memory. Number two, for the prevention of biblicism. And number three, that it unites us with others. So as far as ease of memory, I mean, we want to think God's thoughts after him, don't we? Is that what you desire to do? Do you want to make up your own ideas about God? You don't, right? You want to think God's thoughts after him. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, 66, teach me knowledge and good judgment. And this is one of the beauties of using a catechism. The ease at which memorizing comes. And it's not always easy to memorize, is it? Is it? I don't have the easiest time memorizing scripture, memorizing things in general. Catechism is not intended to replace scripture memory at all in any shape or way of the form. It's intended to support scripture memory. You, you memorize the scripture and you also memorize the catechism to help you understand what the, the doctrine that the scripture is teaching. And so you'll see that in the catechism that we will be using, it's saturated with scripture, sometimes referencing, sometimes alluding to, sometimes quoting verbatim. And it always each question and answer comes with scripture proofs as well. But the Q&A format of a catechism is designed to help us memorize these doctrinal truths. Now, not every question is equal in that regard. Some questions you'll see have very short answers to them. They're pretty easy to keep to memory. Others are pretty long and, and it's a little bit harder to do so. So listen to this long one. This is the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a, it's a wonderful question and answer, but it, it's pretty long. So the, the question in Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's very good. I mean, you can have a couple of sermons developed from the from the scriptures that are contained in what is what is being taught in that catechism answer. But that's pretty long. Most of the questions and answers that we'll be coming to consider during our Sunday evening services will not be long like that at all. But they exist in such a way that we are able to have sound and biblically faithful answers to questions concerning the Christian faith. And in that sense. This really is going to help us to be more evangelistic, friends. This is really going to help us to be more readily able to share the faith that was once and for all given to all with others in our communities, with our families, with our friends. It will help us to be able to articulate the faith in a, in a more clear and precise way. And by the way, there's all different kinds of catechisms, too. There's, there's so many different kinds that are helpful and beneficial, even. Uh, there are some which are specifically for kids. And which are more designed and which are more basic and really designed to help young people kind of just understand concepts rather than the actual substance of the doctrines. Uh, you know, even before comprehension is really a possibility for them, even. And in using a catechism with my children, it has actually been a, a huge blessing for me. We use a children's catechism, right? So we're not, we're using a catechism with my kids that is less detailed than the one that we'll be going over on Sunday nights. But even using this children's catechism has been a great blessing for myself 
as well in the way that I've been able to memorize these truths, these little nuggets of Christian information, as it were. I've even noticed you know, my, my wife, who's not the primary target of the catechesis instruction during our family worship, that she's memorized these things. So sometimes I'll lead it off and then she'll get the kids going by starting it out for them. Uh, it's, we, she's been able to commit these things to memory herself without even, I'm sure, like purposefully setting out to do so. So maybe I could put my kids on the spot here. They're way on. They're way in the back. You know, you're saying no, Ollie. You're saying no. I think he, I think you could do it for us. So we've been using a catechism for a little bit over five years now, starting with Silas, and they're all progressing at different paces. So that's been a challenge in some regard, but um, it produces a foundation. So so boys, what is sin? He said sin is any transgression of the law of God. Right. That's the simple answer. Now. You're a kid. Do you really know what that means? You know, you're growing in your understanding. You're laying this foundation. It just so happens to be another. There's another question follow up to that that says, uh, "What is meant by transgression, boys? Doing what God forbids." So those are concise, clear answers. I mean, what if someone asked you, "What is sin?" Well, you probably are inclined to just go off rattling all the different kinds of sins that we experience, all the different struggles. And it can often sometimes be confusing. But just simply, well, sin is any transgression of the law of God. It's a quick, easy way to internalize something that is true about what the Bible teaches. And like with anything, I mean, you have to stay at it. You have to revisit it. You have to, otherwise you lose it. At least I know that's been my experience, at least. Um, but catechism is helpful with memorizing and really understanding the important or key doctrines of Scripture. Secondly, um, it helps us to prevent the errors of biblicism. And first, we need to define what biblicism is because, I mean, goodness, biblicism sounds like a, a good thing. It's got the word Bible in it, after all. We like the Bible. We're a people of the book. And we know that the Scriptures are the authority and catechisms and creeds and confessions, they are not the authority. They're subordinate to the word. So what is biblicism? Biblicism, I think, is a major player in what has led to the disappearance of catechisms in many evangelical churches. Biblicism is the notion that exists which says, like, all, says, all I need is my Bible. And it sounds good because we know the scriptures are sufficient. But we must not, what we must remember, we mustn't forget that the scriptures are of no private interpretation. We don't have the right to take up the Bible and, and make it say whatever we want it to. So this notion of biblicism was really born out of what's come to be known as the Campbellite movement in the early part of the 19th century, in which a group of believers basically started an anti-doctrinal movement. They opposed doctrine, they opposed these these solid truths because they want to just live their Christianity and, and love one another and have this greater unity. But and that's an oversimplification, but for the sake of time, that's essentially what it was. But what it ended up doing was led to a whole slew of heresies. Mormonism was invented, I guess you could say it like that, soon thereafter, the Campbellite movement. Uh, the denomination, the Church of Christ, you know, the, uh, the Duck Dynasty guys, that's the denomination they're a part of. They are the inheritors, or they can directly trace their roots to the teachings of Alexander Campbell and what is called this restoration movement. And so what you had happen 
was this intentional anti-doctrinal movement for what on the surface seemed like a good cause for the sake of unity, but it was in fact a very bad thing. And so out of this restoration movement came this phrase that many of you have probably heard. It sounds like a good phrase on the surface. It may even elicit an, an amen, but please don't say that after I tell you the phrase. Um, it, it goes like this, and I trust you've heard this before. I have no creed but Christ. Or I have, there's no book but the Bible. So you see, on the surface, that sounds like a good thing. But what it really is, is simply just a really bad creed. It's one thing to say, no creed but Christ. But what Christ are we talking about? Are we talking about the Mormon Jesus? Are we talking about the Muslim Jesus? Are we talking about the Jehovah Witness Christ? So you see, you have to, you have to be able to understand who Christ is and what is meant by saying no creed but Christ. But this sort of anti-doctrinal, because, you know, doctrine divides mindset, this biblicism, is, I suspect, really to blame for the much of the sad state that the church is in today. And the scriptures are clear. We are to teach. Doctrine, in fact, unites us. Going over a catechism will prevent this biblicist notion and help us to be united around the core doctrines of, the tr- of what the Bible teaches. So catechism will assist in, assist in that a lot more than we can say, but we need to, to move on. Thirdly, it unites us with, with others. Number one, it unites us locally. It unites us as first family church. Since we're all learning and believing the same things, we're all hopefully trying to commit these things to memory and have them um, go into to the deep understanding of what they're trying to convey. It helps us all to be built up together in the bonds of love like we're instructed in Ephesians 4. It helps us locally to be more of the same mind. And catechism does that. But then it also helps us as well, what we might say universally, it unites us with what Baptists have believed in history past. Um, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, obviously when we get to heaven, we're going to be most excited to see our Savior. You know, you can't go to heaven just because you want to see your friends and your family. And Jesus is just something that you get as a side bonus, right? You, you get Jesus, you get God. That's the main draw. He is all in all. But one of the other things that you're going to see there, you're going to see believers who have existed, you know, for the past 2,000 years that are already up there. And so taking a catechism, an older one like this, is going to help us, you know, even be united with these brothers and sisters who have went on before us and the other brothers and sisters who use it in their local congregations today as well, too. But Christianity is not a individualistic faith like the air of biblicism ends up putting forth. We are part of a people part of a family. And that family has existed much before uh, First Family Church was planted. Thirdly then, um, on your note sheet, where did the Baptist Catechism come from? It's not an easy question to answer. I'll try to be brief. You have to know something about Baptist history to get this. Uh, Baptists, as we know us today, we had our start in England. That's where the Baptist denomination first formed is in England. There's even the London Baptist Confession, right? Uh, We emerge from what are known as the Congregationalists, which are basically an offshoot of Anglicans and Presbyterians. Clint, I think, didn't your family have from a Congregationalist background? Yeah. So basically, Congregationalists are kind of like an offshoot from Anglicans and Presbyterians. And so at the time of the late 17th century, it was not easy to be a Baptist. 
there was a lot of confusion and there was a lot of persecution against the Baptist believers. They were often assumed to be associated with the Anabaptists, who had a number of theological problems. Basically, the only good thing about the Anabaptists was that they taught believers' baptism. They had a whole lot of theological error that uh, really calls into question their profession of faith. But the Baptist catechism came from a group of churches that left the Congregationalists in favor of rejecting the covenant theology of the Presbyterians and the, the practice of baptizing infants. And so in 1644, these Baptists put forth a statement of faith. It's called the First London Baptist Confession. And it helped to establish them within the realm of Protestantism. And then in 1646, two years later, the Presbyterians released what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. You've probably heard of that. It's famous. It's well known. It also has a larger and a shorter catechism. The Baptist catechism is actually a modified version of the shorter catechism that the Presbyterians have. So fast forward to 1677, the Baptists revised their confession of faith basically so that it would mirror the Presbyterians' confession of faith, changing parts that needed to be improved upon. But because of persecution against the Baptists, the document didn't get publicly published until 1689. That's why we know it as the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It was actually drafted in 1677, but it just wasn't well known because it was dangerous to be a Baptist back then. It was still the sacral society. Um, you would get, you would suffer persecution, possibly death. In the papers from the meeting that the Baptists had in the release of the 1689, there is a petition in them that requests for a pastor named Hercule, Hercule, excuse me, Henry Collins, who was the pastor of a church in Petit France, and um, he, in his his they he, they were calling him to develop a catechism. And so we don't really know when he did it, sometime after 1689. But what we know is that by the time it got actually published and put forth, it's on its fifth edition. So the what we have today that's known as the Baptist Catechism is actually the fifth edition of that catechism that was produced by Henry Collins. And Henry doesn't, Pastor Collins, isn't really associated with it that much. It's more or less this guy named Benjamin Keach, or excuse me, Nehemiah Cox who was the pastor after Collins, who probably did a lot of the work on it, but it's known even more so by a guy named Benjamin Keach, another English Baptist pastor who um, popularized it on a, on, a, on a popular level, put it out there. And so if you look up Baptist catechism today, like online or something like that, you'll probably actually see Keach's catechism as the title for it. Over the years, since then, it's been modified a number of different times. Charles Spurgeon, he modified it. Um, he used it, and he made a couple changes. Listen to what he said. He said, I am persuaded that the use of a good catechism in all our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing errors of the times. Spurgeon lived in a time that was known as what he called the, the great downgrade. It was, an, it was a, an advancement towards liberalism. They rejected the doctrines of the church. Uh, it, it stressed him out. I think it weighed heavily on his heart. Spurgeon died at a relatively young age. Most likely, I think, had a lot to do with the stress that he had from being abandoned by many of his local pastors because of his commitment to scriptures. So anyways, he goes on to say, he says that, therefore, I have compiled this little manual from the Westminster Assemblies and Baptist Catechisms for the use of my own church and congregation. Those who use it in their families or classes must labor to explain the sense but the words shall be carefully learned by heart, for they will be understood better as years pass. May the Lord bless my dear friends and their families evermore is the prayer of their loving pastor. 
So Spurgeon took it, modified it a little bit, made it fit for his congregation. Uh, John Piper, in recent years, a pastor who's still alive today, he released an updated version. And there's been many slight variations of the catechism that exist over time. So in that sense, it could be a little bit confusing. But that brings us to our, our last point. How will we use the Baptist catechism? Well, we're, we're just going back to use one of the older um, original ones. And, and kind of doing a study for this, what we came across a commentary on the Baptist Catechism that was put forward by a, a pastor named Benjamin Bedome. And he does a really excellent job of, he kind of does the same type of thing that Matthew Henry's done and Thomas Goodwin has done with the Westminster Catechism. You could, the Westminster Catechism, they didn't have the, the problems that the Baptists had in being persecuted. And so there a lot of the works from the Reformation, the post-Reformation time, they're from that vantage point. So you can find a lot of good commentaries on the uh, Westminster Catechism, but there's not a whole lot on the Baptist ones. But Benjamin Badome has put forward one that's really helpful, really good. And it's technically the Baptist Catechism, but it's a little bit different than if you were to go online or if you were to buy the Baptist Catechism. Like I was saying, it'd probably be the Keech's Catechism. And some of the questions are worded a little bit differently. And there's even a different question here and there. But if you wanted to, on our website, on the homepage, we have a, I made a little, I don't know, an image that you could click on that'll kind of keep us up to date with what catechism question we're on. And there's a link in there to what's called uh, the Baptist Catechism as adopted by the Charleston Association in 1817. And that's the version that Be Benjamin um, Bedome, that's based off of the version that he wrote his commentary on. And so we'll be basing off of that so you can look at it there. Or you can just pick up a, um, if you want to pick up a catechism yourself and then have that as, as a little book. Just know that it might be a little bit different, but we're going to put it forward every week for you guys to know. So our plan, what we're going to do with it is we're just going to try to go maybe one question a week, maybe two questions, depending on how long they are. And we're going to break down the catechism. We'll, you know, we'll state the question and then we'll look at the answer. And like I was mentioning, every answer is, is inspired by or... Um, I don't want to use inspired because that's the, you know, we say that's the doctrine of the scriptures inspired. So it's based off of scripture. So there's text that we can look at to see how it applies. And we'll look at the implications of it. Uh, Benjamin Badome, his commentary really gives us a good and helpful breakdown that we might do that on. It'll be a shared teaching responsibility by the elders and maybe anybody else who feels so inclined to teach here during the Sunday evening services as well. Um, and the plan is to also make it part of our Sunday morning service, like we did this morning. Uh, we read question one. And so we have question one uh, to be thinking about for this whole week. And then next Sunday evening, we'll, we come together and we'll uh, teach on that question. And next Sunday morning, we'll, we'll recite uh, with a responsive reading question two. So that will set us up for the week. But it'll be pretty straightforward. You know, we'll have time for questions. We want this to be a time of growing for us all together. We want there to be engagement. Uh, you could take it home if you're, you know, if you have the time to, you know, maybe put it on your refrigerator so you can look at it and see it. Most of the questions that we will be going over aren't very long, but it's a good tool to help us get to know what the Bible teaches and helps us to all be on the same page together. Okay, so that's basically the plan to, to use it going forward. Um, is there any, any questions that you guys had? Carol? Yeah, let me, I didn't write it down here on, on thing. Um, the first question, I have it here on the, 
Okay, so yeah, who is the first and chiefest being? The answer, God is the first and chiefest being. So very straightforward. Thank you, Sean. And if you like, so for example, the Baptist Catechism, it says who is the first and best being. So it kind of modernizes the language. But um, we're going to go off of the, the Badom uh, commentary, so we'll go with that chiefest. Yeah, Henry? How many questions are there? There's 114. 114 in this catechism that we're using. So Pastor Nick mentioned a few months. I don't know. Somebody do the math. <laughs> I don't know. If we go one at a time, yeah. And sometimes it might be inconclusive to do with two. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, John? The Particular Baptist Pod. There's a podcast called The Particular Baptist Podcast. Who does that one? Yeah, I'm not aware of that one. I'll check it out. There are a lot of good, I mean, you can go on Sermon Audio even and hear a lot of, you know, teaching on the Baptist Catechism itself as well. I know that um, Doctrine and Devotion, every, they have, they put out a couple episodes per week. One of them is using, is going over the Baptist Catechism. I don't know of that particular one though, but particular Baptist, what that means is that's just, that's to, um, set them apart from what's called the general Baptist. So if you go back to what I was talking about earlier, about how, where did the Baptists have their start from? There was the general Baptist, which taught a general atonement. And then there was the particular Baptist, which taught a particular or definitive atonement. You know, did Christ die for everyone or did Christ die for the elect? And that was a dividing line among teaching for Baptists when the Baptist congregations first started. So particular Baptists podcast, you could guess what side they're on, right? So, yeah, I'm not aware of that, but I'm sure it's probably good. They might even use the Benjamin uh, Badone commentary. But I don't know. Okay, right on there. Yeah, Rebecca? Yeah? The point was... Oh, uh, after for ease of memory, it was to guard against biblicism, the prevention of biblicism. Do you have any questions about biblicism? Yeah, she, asked him, she wants to know what biblicism is. Well, other than biblicism. I didn't understand what he said. I didn't hear it. Oh. I was just asking if anybody had any questions that they wanted to ask about biblicism, or was that something that everyone understood? Because that can be confusing. Because the word is, sounds so good on its surface, it sounds like I endorse the Bible. The problem being that biblicism is an oversimplification that actually creates a lot of room for error because then we're not actually saying what we believe about the Bible. We're just saying, the Bible is all I believe. But in order to understand the Bible, you've really got to work through how it applies to life and how it works together as a system. So we need to we need to teach beyond the Bible. We need to teach what the Bible says. And so in the New Testament, you don't have the Apostle Peter get up and just simply open up Leviticus and read it, or open up Isaiah and read it. He spoke from the Old Testament scriptures and then expounded upon it. So that shows us that there's nothing wrong with doing that. 
as long as the basis and the foundation of it all comes from the Bible. So I just wanted to make sure everyone was getting a clear picture of what that error is. Or on church, um, we've had sex and It makes you the authority of what the Bible says at the end of the day. There's no way to get beyond that. And the only way a biblicist could be true to their word is if they only ever read what the Bible said. But nobody does that. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, even no creed but Christ. Doesn't how mighty and how high does that sound? But what do you really mean by that? I just you have to t- define what that means. So. Yeah, it's common. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, at the time period, there was a, what's called like a sacral society, still a sacred society. So there was a, a blending of church and the state government. And it was, it was primarily from a, a Presbyterian led system. And so heresy, what they considered to be, you know, heresy, if you even look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says today that it's a sin to not baptize your children. And so how do you punish, you know, sin? Well, you kick them out of the church, but it's confusing if the church is also the state. And so they're coming from a period in time in which the Roman Catholic, that's what they saw with the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, Presbyterians aren't like that today. I have a Presbyterian friend who we're discussing covenant theology with, and he said that they admit Baptists into membership, even though they won't baptize um, their babies because they have Baptist convictions. And I'm like, well, that's contrary to their confession of faith, even. Yet, nevertheless, it apparently happens. So because there was this blending of state authority and church authority, the, the spheres of those sovereignty of sovereignty within those different God-given um, places of authority had overlapped to the sense where bad or what was considered to be bad doctrine was punishable by the state themselves. So, so I mean, um, there's a, per, a prerogative term, especially for the Anabaptists. Um, and they were murdered. They were killed. Uh, they would they would do they would call Baptists, especially the Anabaptists, like um, I think they call them the triple baptizers because obviously they were baptized as babies because they were born into this society. And then as Anabaptist means simply means rebaptizer. But again, I, this is confusing because the Anabaptists are a specific theological group of people that have some very abhorrent theological beliefs that are outside of Christian orthodoxy. And so, but they did believe in being baptized upon a profession of faith. So you have your baptism as a baby, and then you have your your rebaptism, which the state church government didn't like. And so they called them the third baptism because they would drown them for their heresy. And so it, it, it was brutal. So you don't have that today, you know. Thank thank the Lord, but 
that's the history where it came from. And so, so part of the thing, when you have like the Baptist confession of faith and this Baptist catechism, it is Baptist saying, look, we are like you. We disagree with this issue that is important. And so we can't fellowship in, in the same church, but we're not outside of Christianity. We're, we, we have way more. Yes, yeah, don't drown us. We have way more in common than we do and differ than we differ. That's a good question. Anything else? Okay, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together tonight. It is good to gather as a church and corporately pray together. What a gift it is that you have given to us that we might intercede for one another, that we might be reminded that we are all in need of the grace and mercy that only you can supply. So help us over this week to be committed to lifting up each other in prayer, that we might point one another to you and the the mercies that are available at your throne of grace. Uh, We pray that the Baptist Catechism would be a benefit to us as a fellowship, as a local congregation in our growth, that we might understand right doctrine and that from that we might have right worship and we might exalt, exalt you all the more as lovely and as wonderful and as holy and good in our thoughts. Let Our thoughts be after your thoughts, Lord. Do away within us any abhorrent thought or belief that does not conform to your holy word. We are so thankful to you for your word and the standard that it provides. Give us understanding of it that we might honor and glorify you. You are worthy of all praise and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.